My name is Ben Almond. I work for a Fortune 250 company with over 50,000 employees. Using the perspective of this background, combined with my own life experiences and a passion for great leadership, I share observations and ideas for you to use on your development journey. This is The View, from where I sit. Hey everybody, Ben here. Today on the podcast, we have serial entrepreneur and advocate for racial equality, Nicole McKinney. Nicole and I met around three years ago when we were both on the selection panel for an innovation competition that Jacobs hosted. After the event, Nicole shared some of what she's been working on with her nonprofit, and we decided to work together to attempt to impact corporate behaviors towards inequality in Canada. Of course, COVID hit, and things have changed in a lot of ways, but many of the challenges remain the same, if not amplified by the events of the summer of 2020. Today we get to hear Nicole's really interesting story, and we have a discussion on corporate responsibility and how important it is that the corporate world is becoming engaged in social issues, particularly anti-racism. Enjoy. Nicole, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. I wonder if you might just take a minute and introduce yourself to the people who are listening out there. Sure. Hi, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, my name is Nicole McKinney, and I am the founder of Waking the Unconscious, which is a not-for-profit organization. We believe that what we cannot acknowledge, we cannot address. And our main focus is actions and outcomes as it relates to anti-Black, people of color racism, unconscious bias, and privilege and marginalization. We focus on moving beyond performative commitments and allyship and via the unlearning and the dismantling and the reimagining of a new system, which is our goal, and a new culture that is inclusionary of Black, Brown, and Indigenous people. I also own a digital advertising agency that I've had for two decades, and uh, we focus on technological development of things like supply chain software. We do a lot of web development and a lot of creative advertising campaigns. I'm a serial entrepreneur, and uh, I'm going into my third decade now of this work. And I think everything that we do in business overlaps. So one thing kind of leads you to another thing and allows you to use all of your skills and experiences to take you to that next place. Thanks, Nicole. You know, people could jump to a conclusion that you've taken on the battle of anti-racism and equality in the recent past, given you know global events around social equality and, and anti-Black racism. But I know the story, and I know a bunch of your background from when we met a couple of years ago and the work we've been doing for a few years together. But I'd love it if you could share a little bit of your personal experience and where it all began and, and how you got to the place where you are today, where, you know, you're really focused on making an impact. Sure. I have a very unconventional journey, as you know. My ethnicity is my mother is Jewish from an Orthodox Jewish background. My father was African-American from the southern United States. And to give context where I talk about my father, I'll just say that uh, my dad was born in 1920 and I was part of a second family. So he had kids at 20 years old. And then I was part of a family that he had at 50. So my life experience, especially uh, impacted very much by my parents 
is reflected in that span of time where my father lived through some of the worst of experiences where in anti-racism, especially in the southern United States, he was from Gurdon, Arkansas. As a child growing up, I grew, I was born in New York City and uh, my father was a professor there and uh, then took on a opportunity to be the second international academic at the University of Guelph. So I really grew up in Guelph, Ontario. And my dream in life was to be in fashion. From the time I was two, I was always wearing jewelry, carrying handbags, playing with lipstick. And I lived out that dream. I had to go to my father, who was expecting me to go to law school when I was ready to go to college. And I had to tell him that I wanted to be in the fashion industry, which didn't go over very well. So we negotiated and cut a deal. And the deal was that I had to get a four-year degree at a university of his approval in an area of studies that he felt was viable for me to be able to get a job somewhere in my life. And then he would pay for me to go to school for fashion. So I went to SUNY Purchase, which is a well-known arts university in Purchase, New York. And then I was showed my father my degree and was able to go to FIT, which is the Fashion Institute of Technology, which is kind of the Harvard of fashion of the world, so to speak. I then went on to work on 7th Avenue for 12 years and uh, in the fashion business on the design and manufacturing side. So anything that had to do with the design and manufacturing of women's clothing was part of my job. And then I sold it to most of the retailers across the United States and Canada. I then came back to Canada and got an opportunity to launch the Boys Wear Division for Polo Ralph Lauren for Canada. And I worked there for four years and decided that I had lived my dream. Now what's next? I am an extremely um, impulsive and huge risk taker and decided to leave the fashion business. And from there, I started doing consulting and brand strategy. And so I was helping companies build their brand through my extensive experience of working in the fashion industry that certainly was the leader in branding um, of all things in marketing and advertising for a very long time. And from there, I noticed that there was a gap in the amount of women that were running or working in advertising agencies. And there were certainly no women of color. And a very well-known, very successful ad agency owner, who we were working with at the time, suggested to me that I launch a digital advertising agency and take some of his young female designers with me. And he would support me and help me learn the business in order to be able to launch this agency. So being the impulsive risk taker that I was, the next day I owned a digital advertising agency, which I called BCAD Group, which stands for Brand, Culture and Design. And that agency has been running for over 20 years. We've had a diverse mix of clients, large and small, from uh, TJX to Honda to Amex the big banks, Scotiabank, BMO, we've done work for in the past, and we've won some design awards as well. So we've been quite successful in that area. Within 20 years of doing this work, my father got very ill. He was in his 90s. And my father had been working in anti-Black racism all of my life. So the thread, as I was speaking about before, about how everything you do in life kind of comes back, and I'll rethread this, is that uh, growing up with biracial parents, 
I think every single day that I was alive on this earth, my father was preparing us for what our life was going to be as black children in Canada and in the United States. And so every day he was talking about what we had to do to prepare ourselves being black and what was needed of us to survive being black. When you're younger, you listen to this, you get tired of it. There were no people of color actually growing up in Guelph where we grew up. There was maybe one or two other people in our high school. And being mixed, a lot of times we were able to blend in in ways that, you know, other children may not have been able to do so. The racism that we experienced was vast, but it was very subtle. And I always talk about that difference between Canada and the United States. In the United States, the racism is blatant. You know exactly where you stand. It stands out for you. In Canada, it's kind of insidious in the fact that it is um, masked in such a way that you can't always even name the experiences that you have, yet they are damaging as they build up over time. Um, and while this was going on, my father in combat, literally being in combat mode and, and wanting to prepare us for what our experiences were as black, young black women and men, chose to raise us with preparation. And so instead of us going to Florida and Disneyland, we were going to art galleries to see El Greco. We would drive into Toronto every weekend and they would take us for lunch or dinner at the Four Seasons Hotel or at other high-end restaurants so that we would be comfortable in environments that we weren't necessarily going to be welcomed in or welcomed to. So in some ways, my journey to this work was always there. My dad was a very big personality. Um, we always had students in our house. He had a research team called the McKinney Research Group, and they were doing a lot of research around anti-Black racism in Canada. Some of it was in Nova Scotia um, with the Black United Front. He did work with York University on police brutality back probably in the 80s. And uh, most notably that a lot of people might have heard, especially those in the legal profession, uh, when he turned 65, he took the University of Guelph to the Supreme Court of Canada fighting mandatory retirement. So he had a large body of research ongoing when he turned 65 and he was nowhere near ready to go. And the law said that he had to retire. So in his revolutionary style, he decided to take the University of Guelph to court, and that court case ended up going to the Supreme Court of Canada. And it's now a precedent case called McKinney versus the University of Guelph. And uh, that case has been used in various ways and areas within the law. I guess we can all thank my dad that when we're 90, we can still work if we work in the world of academia. So to weave that thread back as to how I got to where I am today, 20 years in, I'm working in my advertising agency, working on some very interesting projects. And my father got very sick. He was in his early 90s because I was the closest child to him. Uh, a lot of the responsibility of the caregiving during that time. You know, you start to think about your parents' mortality. We knew my dad wasn't going to live forever. And I started to look at the legacy that my dad was going to leave behind. And when he did pass away five years ago, he was um, in his 96th year. He, You can look back and here I am telling you the story about the contributions he's made, not only to um, the work that he was doing, but also to the country and the legacy that he left. And so 
it made me start to think, what is my legacy going to be? Am I going to have another campaign or another software project that I build for a company? Is that going to be what my legacy is? Or is there something bigger? And I started to think about my history and my heritage and what was going on. And um, two years ago, we were still not in a space as a country, as a global entity, where we could really talk about race in a way that is as raw and real as we can today. But there was this movement of companies building departments called diversity and inclusion. And I was listening to the discourse at networking events and online by all of these corporations, academic institutions, and not-for-profit organizations talking about diversity and inclusion and how important it was to focus on allyship and belonging. And as I'm listening to all of this, what I wasn't hearing was any discussion of the understanding about one's lived experience. What I wasn't hearing was the discussion about privilege and marginalization and those experiences for those who have privilege and those that have been marginalized. And then it kind of clicked to me, wow, how can you be an ally to somebody if you don't understand their lived experience? How can you support them? You don't even understand the manifestations of their experience of what systemic racism has done to them on a daily basis, back from generations, to be able to truly understand how you can be an ally to, to someone else. And I felt it was that light bulb moment that said, I have to do something. Nobody's talking about this. I have to be the one. So being that risk taker, action maker, serial entrepreneur, I decided I was going to do something about it. Then I met a lovely lady, Sybil Allen, who's one of our partners and co-creators at WTC. And she has a degree in organizational behavior. She's a social worker and has done a lot of work in diversity and inclusion her entire life. And we started to talk about all the ways that we could facilitate making changes. And our philosophies on what we needed to do in order to be able to take action, in order to create outcomes for real change in the diversity inclusion space. And for us, that became individual behavior. I decided to launch a not-for-profit corporation, which is WTC and Waking the Unconscious, that focuses on specifically doing the work of and putting the emphasis on individual behavior to change actions in order for those to leverage their privilege to close inequity gaps. I think that without each person analyzing and understanding their own behaviors and actions, we cannot move forward to facilitate change in this space. And then COVID came and I gave everybody a pause. And then George Floyd's murder happened. And I've always said that the only way that this is going to affect change in others is when you hear or see something that affects you right in your gut. You know, Oprah calls it that aha moment that makes you want to um, look at within yourself and say, what did I do to contribute? Or this is absolutely wrong. And it also put the work that we're doing on a global stage now, because I think now um, those that are black, those that are indigenous, those that are people of color are in a place where the pain has become too much. And we have decided that we are no longer going to stay silent. So the 
ramifications that have held us back, that have silenced us in the past are no longer, and that people are going to speak up and share their experiences. They're going to protest all around the world until what's been happening in this world changes um, and we dismantle and reimagine a new system and a new culture that is inclusionary of Black, Brown, and Indigenous people. Well, that's a, a heck of a journey, Nicole, considering, you know, your dad, who certainly sounds like an incredible man, his life experiences impacting him, shaping who he was, but also shaping, you know, how he raised his children and, and the experiences he tried to give you to prepare you for what was ahead was unlikely to foresee the events that took place here in 2020 and the fact that you know, ready, readily available video cameras and social media allows us to demonstrate to people that these things are real. And, you know, real people are experiencing these types of things every day. When we met three years ago, I don't think we even could have guessed the type of traction and visibility that the efforts around anti-racism and equality would have gained at this point. So we were together talking about how do we influence the environment through the behaviors that we actually demonstrate as, as an organization and, and as leaders in an organization. Your backstory and, and your passion for this, along with your visibility across multiple industries, multiple really significant organizations, you know, gives you a perspective that I've not been able to to have on on the podcast to share with people yet. So I'd love to hear a bit more of your perspective on what you see out there across corporate Canada, corporate America. You know, historically, I'm sure that your dad would have shared this viewpoint. And, and I know you and I do that there was a time in history where major corporations would remain silent on any social issue. That was the safe thing to do, right, was to not become engaged, not take a side not take a hard stance. And we're, we're seeing some of that. I'm curious to hear a bit of your perspective on, you know, how much of it is performative. How important is that in actually making a difference going forward that it's not performative, actually, but also the fact that corporations are willing to take a stance and take action? I think it's vital. I think and it's going to be vital to their bottom line. Because many of their employees, those who are black, those that are people of color, those who are of the millennial and younger generations who are no longer going to tolerate anti-black racism, who are no longer going to tolerate systemic racism, the workforce that those corporations need, and they will not be able to retain them if they do not start to look within and to really understand all of the mechanisms that they facilitated. One of the things that I think all people need to understand, not just corporations, is that silence is being complicit. So we all need to do something. We can no longer allow these things to take place. And in order for change to happen, we need to be able to speak about it. We need to be able to have those uncomfortable and difficult conversations. There is an intention for many companies, many leaders to make statements, they want to do something and there's a fear of, I don't know what to do. And so sometimes those statements come across as performative, meaning that 
wanting to do something that they believe is going to build their social credibility and show to their employees and to the outside world that they are taking a stand on something that they feel they must take a stand on without really understanding the intention of those statements and how what you say and the language that you use can facilitate whether you're truly um, willing to take the action. Also, whether you're willing to do the work to learn, to understand how to make the right statement, to use the right language, and to be able to name the, the situations that are going on. We have always known that Black people in Canada and Brown people, Indigenous people in Canada and the United States have never been invited to partake as equals as Canadians and Americans. And I believe for every leader, for every corporation, if we are going to speak with each other and we're truly going to address anti-Black racism, anti-Black people of color and Indigenous racism, we are going to have to begin to have discussions where we speak the truth. And we must begin by naming racism for what it is and for the ways it has crippled the lives of Black, Indigenous, and Brown Canadians and Americans generations at a time. So some of the differences in those corporate statements really come around the language and being able to name what it is. And there's a huge fear in taking that risk to be able to, the discomfort of naming something that you may not even believe to be true. Canada in particular, because we're here, and I'll speak on that for just a second, has used the guise that Canada is colorblind. And by calling it uh, as, as a nation, colorblind means we do not see color. If we do not see color, we don't see the people within our multicultural country that we are so proud of. And so we don't see the black, the brown, the indigenous people within our country because we have now wiped them out by saying that we don't see them. Not only wiping them out, but not valuing the different perspectives and experiences that people bring to the table, right? Absolutely. And therefore, they aren't um, nurtured, they aren't developed, they aren't uh, celebrated for the value that they bring to an organization. Anti-Black racism is deeply entrenched in Canadian and American institutions, policies, and practices. Often, because this, this racism is so entrenched, it makes racism appear normal or invisible to society at large. And this means that it's very difficult for black or brown or indigenous people to name their specific experience of anti-black racism. So oftentimes what happens in a corporate environment, there are severe consequences. So when, the, when you're living with these experiences on a daily basis that you can't even name, if you speak up, and you decide not to be silenced, you run into the consequences of loss of employment. You run into the consequences of being targeted by, you know, management, by other colleagues. You are isolated now because you've spoken up and everybody wants to be away from you because they weren't speaking up. Why are you jeopardizing who, what their opportunity is? I think that's so important. I've shared this with people in our organization before. I'll share it with you. I certainly felt for the longest time that the air quote not seeing color was not being racist right was the right way to be and you know honestly i didn't realize 
that what I was what I was saying when I was saying that was that I wasn't valuing those differences and I wasn't picking up on that. And, you know, there's there's a certain amount of discomfort in being able to come out and talk about things that make you uncomfortable because you haven't experienced it. Right. I certainly am learning every day from talking to people like yourself and, and others and hearing the stories and experiences that folks that I care about have have been through. And as you said, with respect to Oprah, it, it takes you having that aha moment where you realize, you know, these are real people. These are real experiences and real feelings that people are having. Being willing to stand out in front and challenge this is something that for the longest time was not only easy, it was acceptable and encouraged. And I think the pivot point we've finally reached here in 2020 is it's unacceptable to be silent and accept this and go with the flow because that's safe. And I hope that more and more people, if they're willing to put themselves into the shoes of others and listen to the experiences that others have lived and are living today, are living today, that's really important, are going to be willing to speak up and go, this isn't okay. I wouldn't be okay with this for my family, for my children, for my friends, for those that I'm associating with in our community. And I'm willing to stand out in front and be different than that. But I think you have to have that moment where you go, oh, I was wrong. And that's, I think, a difficult place. And that's why I think looking at your own identity and your own behaviors and actions is so important. And I think that's why our work is so valuable. You know, racism is is so difficult to prove. And when you're a victim of racial discrimination and you don't feel safe about speaking up about it, it slowly festers and eats away at your life on a daily basis. Those positions of power and privilege a lot of times aren't there to to support you. So you end up suffering in silence because they're justifying a lot of the racism that you're experiencing on a daily basis because it's invisible to society at large. So now you're trapped. It's vital for leadership to kind of step back and unlearn anti-Black racism because that leadership has to, to model the behaviors that you want to trickle down to the rest of your company, to your business to the heads of your DNI leadership. And, and then hopefully you can start to educate the rest of your company in turn so that people begin to understand that you're not just creating policies based on possible misperceptions of the, your organization's inclusivity, but truly looking at creating models for change. And what does that change look like? True. I think this is one of the places where we need to challenge ourselves. That historical action of we have a department for that doesn't get the job done, in my opinion. You know, years ago, we put ourselves up against a challenge where we said, listen, we can't be the type of industry where people die at work. We need to be different than that. And that means there's not a health and safety manager and it's their job to keep everyone safe. That means every one of us needs to take some ownership of creating an environment where people go home in the same or better state as they showed up at work. If we want to create an environment that radiates outside of the walls of any organization, it means that all of us, I say leaders, but I mean leaders of all levels, right? Leaders of that are influential, that maybe don't occupy a box on an org chart, all the way to CEOs. 
need to be able to take some actions, right? And I think that starts with, as you're suggesting, listening and being open to the inputs that you may not have experienced yourself. I mean, I know I hear stories and experiences every day that I find heartbreaking and gut-wrenching and, you know, honestly infuriating, but also be able to translate that into action. Since George Floyd's murder, we've spent the last number of months with a lot of people talking about the things we intend to do. And I think it would be helpful if you could talk me through it a little bit or give us some advice on, you know, we're listening now. Hopefully people are starting to listen and take those things in. How do we start to take action? As with anything, we may start taking action and need to adjust course down the road, but I always have a bias towards action. So can you help us with that transition into let's do something? Let's let's start somewhere. And how how do individuals and leaders start that? I think it begins with education. It becomes with education and being willing to listen and truly hear the things that people experience. What is it like to be black on a day-to-day basis? What is the history of anti-black racism? And I think there's lots of ways um, we can educate ourselves. There's so much information out on the internet. There are so many amazing books that are out there. And I think there are so many amazing movies that are out there. And I think one of the first ways we can take action is to take responsibility individually and start educating ourselves, start reading. Even though I've lived this experience all of my life, I've been doing a ton of reading myself. I think it's important for us to always be educating ourselves. I think you and I talked about Ben uh, reading uh, The Skin We're In by Desmond Cole. There's another book called Say You Want to Talk About Race by Lajoma Olu, which is phenomenal. Ibrahim Kendi has a great book on how to be anti-racist. Uh, Ava DuVernay uh, has an amazing, incredible movie that I think everybody should watch called The 13th. If you go to our website at wakingtheunconscious.com, we actually have a whole list of resources on our website. I also think that it's important that we start to have those difficult conversations and you have to be prepared that in having those conversations, that it isn't necessarily a shaming uh, situation, that this is a situation that is going to unlock some truths, some uncomfortable truths about the experiences that are benign to others. And being able to listen and not be defensive are some of the tactics that you're going to have to employ in order to um, do this work. The other thing I think people need to do is they have to look inward and they have to look at their own self-identity. I read somewhere that somebody was talking about being in high school and the person who happened to be white was looking in the lunchroom and saw that the black students were sitting in one area and the Hispanic students were sitting in another area. Nobody looked to say, oh, here are the white students sitting in this area. And I think you start you need to start to look inward at the various areas of how your privilege has affected your station in life. And also understanding that we all, all of us, it doesn't matter what color, what race, what religion, what gender, what ethnicity, we all have a bias. We all have unconscious biases. 
And we need to understand within that stratosphere of the biases that we all have, that we've all formed at every circumstance that we enter into our life, especially in a workplace environment, that understanding our privilege, where we're privileged and where we're marginalized can be extraordinarily helpful. And that could be as simple as, you know, starting to take a piece of paper and write down what are all the areas where your privilege has benefited you? And where are some of the areas that you might be marginalized? And how has that affected you and how you've um, been able to move throughout your life, both personally and professionally? I think that when you start to do this inward work and you start to look at these key aspects of the systems that have been built around us, then you can start to understand the ways in which you need to take action so that we can start to dismantle the systems that are currently in place and reimagine new ones that are inclusive. Nicole, you hit on so many good points. And we talk about privilege and people naturally associate privilege with money or clear visible advantages and it gets tied up with a negative connotation and i think in this sense we need to recognize that as you said privilege can be absolutely invisible to the person who's enjoying it and it's relative recognizing that there are some things systemically built in that allow opportunities or chances to come much more easily to you wouldn't necessarily have been readily visible to you. And being willing to admit that there is privilege and you received some of it is not a bad thing. The question is, what are you going to do with it? I agree 100% with you. And I also think, um, you know, we have to look at the basics of what that privilege stands for and then look at the other side to see how that marginalized piece coexists with that privileged piece. And a great example would be um, your skin color. Even if you had no money and you were like living in, you know, low income circumstances, just by the color of your skin, you're likely not to get stopped by a policeman and uh, possibly be afraid that that policeman, if he stopped you, was going to take a gun and shoot you. The mere color of your skin as a privilege immediately changes the dynamic of what your experience is going to be on a day-to-day basis, irregardless of your financial status, your educational status. So the power of understanding your privilege and not seeing shame in that privilege, but taking responsibility for the privileges that you do have and being able to then leverage that privilege to close inequity gaps is how we're going to be able to take action. And before we can take that action, we have to understand that privilege and then we have to be able to give something up. And that's a very difficult thing for people because that means giving up power. I like that. If we consider, you know, the conversation and advice for people, right? We've we've gone through this process and people have heard me say this before and I think it really applies in this topic. I don't think the idea of of learning and constantly growing your knowledge base will ever end. So, you know, keep reading those books, keep taking in inputs from sources that aren't in your natural circle of uh, of information sources and really be listening to that, start to educate yourself on the experiences of others, but also 
hopefully through that process, you know, reflect a little bit on your own experiences, including those that were omitted from your life experiences, right? And that will help you shape a bit of a baseline. And then, you know, you when we start to talk about generating equality and creating that type of a space in, you know, a workplace or inside of an organization of some sort, we often use the statement, what gets measured gets done. And I'd love to hear your opinion, Nicole, on, you know, how we use KPIs in this space. And is that a good idea? How do we measure success? And if we are going down a dangerous path there, or is there an opportunity for us to look at action and success in a different way than we, we have in the past? I do think we have to look at it in a different way than we have in the past. So currently, a lot or many of the KPIs have been focused on numbers within the organization related around BIPOC employee breakdowns by group. And this doesn't take into account the types of roles and opportunities that BIPOC people occupy within the organizations. And in many cases, a lot of the roles that are occupied by BIPOC employees are held um, via admin roles, facilities type uh, roles, and lower level positions in these organizations. The other area of KPI and measurement and focus has been regarding equity has put, been put on gender and the growth of leadership opportunities focused around gender. And there's been tremendous success around getting more women into roles of leadership and advancing women. But gender focuses a lot of the times mainly on white women and hasn't had much focus on the unique issues and direct results that focuses specifically on BIPOC women who tend to be relocated to their race and tied to BIPOC men rather than a specific entity related to them. So that's another area where I think that um, KPIs need to be adjusted and maybe we need to look at a new way to figure out measurements by category and advancement and opportunity. Some of the other things that I've been thinking about is KPIs tied to uh, mentorship and sponsorship with measurement structures around the successes and ongoing development of BIPOC mentees. Are they gaining confidence and opportunities for leadership, exposure and experience? Are they being exposed to working with senior leadership in a variety of areas of the company? Um, are they being exposed to leading projects? So having KPIs that are tied to the successes of actual mentorship and sponsorship programs would also help to make sure that those that are mentoring and sponsoring are actually helping um, nurture and develop the people that they're mentoring and sponsoring. One of the other areas is the idea of those with power um, and being fearful of losing that power and their own opportunities for growth and advancement and leadership which in turn impedes the eagerness to leverage one's privilege to close an equity gap. So if there were KPIs around those who gave up their leadership opportunities to BIPOC employees and it was tracked and tied to remuneration, that might be a really strong way to facilitate more people sharing project lead and presentation opportunities, client presentation and project management leads on project sites. I know at Jacobs in particular, you work on a lot of outside project work. I do believe that senior leadership has a responsibility to focus on modeling behaviors. 
So they need to model the behaviors that they want to see throughout the company and people that they're leading. And by taking a step back to give somebody else an opportunity has to be presented and displayed as an actual leadership opportunity and not something that you're doing for a favor for something else or not seen as a loss. It should be seen as a gain. KPIs on committee and other team engagement. So I know a lot of companies, including um, Jacobs, have resource groups or cultural related resource groups. And so it's important that everybody have a place within an organization to be able to go where there are people like you that you identify with, where you can be safe and honest and share your feelings and build relationships. But I think there's also value in encouraging people to um, participate in other groups unrelated to their culture so that all of these groups can start to gain a variety of participants with diverse perspectives, views, and ideas to be able to get to know and work together better. These programs are going to be the most successful when there are processes that make everyone accountable. So I think in the past, a lot of companies have looked at D&I as a silo or a specific area in a company and a certain area of initiatives. But I think the change has to come by the fact that that everybody has to be accountable for implementing these changes and that the balance of the program work and the responsibility with every employee's main role and the ability for them to be compensated and recognized for the work of of the advancement of others has to be part of everybody's um, assessment within the business itself. I like it. I think one of our measures of success has to be gauging whether or not we are creating not just not just offering, but creating opportunities for everyone. And that includes opportunities where the same support network exists for facilitating success and growth along the way. And that's certainly a place where there's a danger in large organizations where we have a stated outcome, but then you know the same infrastructure, is still churning through decisions. And ultimately, if we don't challenge the infrastructure, we end up with the same answers we used to because we're asking the same people. So creating some level of internal challenge team or engagement that that just forces you to ask yourself some of those questions so that if your eyes weren't open to it, they're open to it now, I think is is quite important. And along those lines, Nicole, maybe take you down a bit of a a close but different path. I think there's a lot of us out there right now who have really good intentions. And sometimes, as we all know, good intentions don't necessarily create great outcomes. Those can be a bit divergent and potentially we could be damaging the very thing we're trying to do a good job at with our actions. So I'd I'd love to get a bit of your impression on some of the things that feel like from, say, my perspective, might have great intentions, but don't necessarily help. In fact, they could be hurtful. And then maybe as part of that discussion, can we talk a bit about how people's eyes may have been opened to what it's like to be in a challenged environment through their experience in the pandemic? Sure. Some great examples of that are all the people that are putting black squares on their um, social media. So there was that blackout day for Black Lives Matters. People who post on their social media the hashtag of Black Lives Matter. People who participate in protests and marches. But beyond those actions of good intentions of saying you support 
Black Lives Matter is an anti-Black racism, you're not taking actions. Are you actually boycotting certain companies that don't espouse values that are matching the good intentions that you um, aim to promote, especially in the anti-Black racism movement that's happening right now? Are you supporting and buying and seeking out Black-owned and run companies to purchase products and services from? Have you looked at your tribe? Have you sought out to get to know and brought into your circle a diverse group of people that you're building relationships with, that you're getting to know, that you're participating in? Are you amplifying Black voices? Are you amplifying Indigenous voices? Those are actions against good intentions. Um, and I think that a lot of people, and we call this performative allyship, want to build their, you know, social street cred, so to speak, by having those good intentions and not taking actions. And in some way, it's detrimental to the movement, to the facilitating of change and action, if you're not really serious about it, because it gives the appearance that people are doing things, that companies are saying things when they aren't really taking action. The biggest challenge for us as individuals is trying to find our way towards doing more than just talking about the problem, but finding little ways every day to focus on improving on the environment that we impact ourselves and the environment that our organizations impact. And you know, today I think you've done an amazing job at helping arm us with a few ideas on how we can learn and approach those problems in a really well thought out way. But also, you know, some recommendations that we, this is not a one size fits all type of solution. We each need to look in the mirror and figure out how we do this and take those actions. And now I think the big challenge for all of us as, as leaders from all levels, is converting this into action and shifting away from, you know, the the posturing of I want to do something that is great and impactful and following the lead of people like, you know, you and your dad who have been doing this for years to actually take action and impact the way it feels for those people around us and those people that we care about. And there's nothing wrong with looking in the mirror and saying, man, I wish I'd started earlier. I also think, you know, you have to take baby steps. We all need to be kind to one another. You know, none of this is about shaming anyone, as I said earlier. But I think that some of us also have to be willing to take the risk to give up some of our power in order to close those inequity gaps. If we can do that, if we can step away from one thing that gives us some power over another in order to put your hand down and lift that person up, that is how we're slowly going to be able to level that playing field bit by bit. You know, the challenges of the pandemic and all of us be stripped of the material things in our worlds, um, having to be locked at home. And some of the changes for those that, that had extreme privilege, who maybe lost their job, who maybe didn't have to worry about buying food or paying their rent. And all of a sudden, within um, no fault of their own, we're now having to go to a food bank for the first time in their lives. Or maybe couldn't pay their rent and had to go and to their landlord and, and, you know, negotiate to figure out how that they were going to be able to stay in their homes. 
And I think it is humbled people and provided people with an experience of the grit and resilience that maybe they didn't know they had to overcome the fears and the challenges of being in in circumstances that others have to live in on a day-to-day basis. And it's opened up the door to empathy, a new kind of empathy that can allow us all to be able to start to have these very difficult and uncomfortable conversations and given us a better opportunity to be empathetic to others and to hear things that we weren't able to hear before the pandemic. Well, Nicole, I I don't know that I could say it any better myself. I will say this, that whether it is the pandemic that is teaching us or it is people who are generous with their experiences and their time and their willingness to share and educate You know, we're all learning something every day and hopefully it's helping us continue to grow and challenge those norms so that, you know, the future that, you know, people's grandkids grow up in is something that our prior generations could never have imagined. And, you know, I just want to thank you for taking the time today to help us and help the listeners out with a few ideas and and a bit more education. And I think, you know, we ought to have you back on and check back in on how we're doing in uh, in some period of time here. I would love to do that. Thank you. I think the fact that we're having this conversation could encourage others to have the conversation too, and that's what we're all about. So we have to be speaking and talking about these things. So I'm honored to have the opportunity to be able to speak about this with you. It's amazing. Oh, I love it. Well, th- thanks so much, Nicole. We'll come back, and hopefully we've made miles of progress, but one step at a time. Well, I hope you enjoyed our first external guest on the podcast and that you've gotten a few ideas on how you or your organization could get started and measure your progress in dealing with racism and inequality. This is going to be a continuous push, so keep fighting the good fight and making an impact every day. We're all in this together. This is The View from where I sit. <laughs>